Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Are we ready? Yeah, just welcome us back. Welcome to round two, part two of The Cost of Convenience, the podcast that I got talked out of calling Behind the Plaidsters. Um, if the first part was the history of shopping in America, right, this is the history of convenience stores, specifically, because this is about the cost of convenience stores on the employees, on the community, and even on the people that own it. We'll, we'll get much more into that in our later section, but I wanted to lay the groundwork of where, where plaid comes from, uh, because it comes from 7-Eleven. Alright. Uh, the first convenience store was 7-Eleven, founded in 1927 in Dallas, Texas. That's why it's so terrible. Uh, a little bit. Uh, what happened was, uh, it was an ice store. Or an ice, an ice house storefront. And, uh, another, another one of those big revolutions in consumerism was the ability to massively create, produce, and ship ice throughout the country. Yeah. Uh, because it used to be an ice box was literally a box that you put ice, ice into. Yeah, a big block of ice in. Right, and it would keep things cold. And so, uh, 7-Eleven originally started as, it didn't, it didn't have really a name. It was just an ice storefront house, right? And people would come to here and buy blocks of ice to take home. Did they also do snow cones? Uh, not yet. That comes much later. That comes in the 60s. How did it take that long? Uh, we're going to talk about I'm that. I'm sorry. I'm just a little <laughs> upset right now. Well, because they didn't have like the syrup machines. They didn't have a way to dispense it kind of individually. Because what they would do is just... I, I don't know the exact process of refrigeration and freezing, but they would just ship huge chunks of ice places. So you would get a block cut off and sent to your store that you would cut off into smaller blocks. Right? And it was a while until this became like the size of in our refrigerators, right? But in okay. the in the nineteen twenties we came we kind of figured out how to produce it and how to sell it and whatnot. And the thing that seven eleven did, early seven eleven, before it has a name, uh, that revolutionizes things, is it puts stuff that needs to be kept cold with the ice. Oh my god, revolutionary. It is. Because at this point, right, you're usually counting on your milkman to deliver your milk or, or your eggs or whatever, right? Especially if you don't have a farm. And but yeah. Now. Yeah. And this is when the convenience store, like kind of what we would think of them starts, right? So here's a question I have. Um with like say butchers and stuff do you think they were doing that too like they had or like they bought ice so that they could keep their meat cold a little bit in the case of like butchers it's it's in my understanding uh is that it's much more like you're you're getting the meat sent to you fresh each day and then you're cutting it up to either be made into salami or made into something so you're kind of ordering uh and this is a thing that all that, that i should have covered actually in grocery shopping and god whatnot. damn it but it's it's that you're ordering stuff that you know one of the one of the big deals that grocery stores have is they actually don't make a ton of profit right uh because they're trying to buy as much as they can sell without having excess 
right? So, so that means they run out sometimes. Or or they overstock, and so they have to sell it for reduced before mm. it goes bad, right? Uh, and with with this first series of stores, you don't need to worry about that as much because you know you're going to sell the milk out that you, you just bought, right? And the, the big switch, the big change comes in... Uh, 1928. And what happens is one of the owners of this chain of ice stores buys a totem pole from Alaska and brings it to their store and puts it in front of the store and they become the totem stores. T-O-T flying comma M. T-O-T-E flying comma M store. I know it's an apostrophe. I like saying Oh my it. god! That's the best way to call it. Why don't we just call it a flying comma? Oh uh, my god. So. <laughs> you can't say something like that and then not allow me to stop and talk about it. That is on you. Put too much flair in here. I put that. I didn't know that was a thing. Other Flying people. Flying commas. I'd never thought. <laughs> I've been saying that since I was a kid. <laughs> so the totem, the the totem stores. It's play on words because God, that's such an uncomfortable name. There's a totem pole outside, but the name of the ice is you. You tote the ice away yourself right oh and it ends up becoming totem brand ice they're, they're they're a big business in texas for several years they might still be around or the manufacturers of the the ice for big so, ice yeah man. big big, big ice. uh so they go by that until 1946 when they switch their hours uh and they're open the, the other thing is they're open very limited hours uh and the the notion of convenience is that you're going there because you're inconvenienced again. You need a little bit more milk or you need ice, and it's convenient to pick Mm -hmm. these things up while you're there. It's not the idea that it's easy to get to necessarily, and it's not the idea that it's easy to prepare from. It's just the fact that like it's convenient to pick up things in addition to the ice while you're here. Yeah, it's it's so... The businessy part of me is like, oh, that absolutely makes yeah. sense. You're doing one thing and you can do this other thing with really without adding much extra cost at all. I mean, it's the concept of a comedy club. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the the thing that's important and that I think the, the reason it's such a steady business is that in particular with convenience stores, with stores that are convenient in this time, your your spending is kind of fixed. Right. And that's that's the real appeal of a convenience store that, you know, the cost of labor, you know, the cost of of uh, products and, you know, the cost of operating. So everything past that is profit. Right. So whatever you mark up your items, that's your profit. Uh, whatever free labor you get out of your employees, that's your profit. But yeah. the the important thing is that convenience at this time is that it's convenient to also pick up these items so you start getting newspapers cigarettes uh sodas things that can be conveniently sold with the ice when did comic books become popular um in the early 1900s and it starts with superman but there's a whole bunch of superheroes kind of after him and in fact okay uh the character we call shazam was originally named Captain Marvel and outsold. Oh, yeah. yeah, he outsold Superman for a while, and that got DC to sue uh, Fawcett Comics, and then they bought the rights to Marvel, and it ends up being this whole weird thing. So what you're saying is Captain Marvel built DC? 
uh, he he definitely the money that they won from that lawsuit helped them corner the market. I think in a way that like other industries couldn't. Okay. So for the longest time, DC was like the flagship standard, and then Marvel. Uh, Marvel went through many iterations. Okay, we went way off topic, yeah. but that was great. What I did want to say, though, is I was wondering, like, they sold comic books at those places. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and But also, Shazam is probably DC's most heartwarming movie. Yes, I concur there. I, I shit on a lot of DC, but Shazam was great. And the name, so so they're selling comic books and all that, and and the transition, <laughs> smooth transition, Pat, <laughs> professional. Cheers to that. Um, but they they they're up until 1946 or so. They're operating about six days a week, and they're operating kind of during what we would consider kind of nine to five business hours. Like they're usually shut off at seven, right? Uh, and they, they're getting gas stations attached to them and whatnot as this goes along. But it's not until 1946 that they changed the name to 7-Eleven in 1946. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. was the reflection of the name. But some sources will have you here. They were open 11 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, initially. you know what's a f- funny to think about? When I worked at Target, we were 8 to 10, which is like just two hours shy of that and that's not even a convenience store so that yeah. communicates how much we've made it so necessary yeah. and there's and it's important to remember we don't have a 24 hour day until like part of the way into the 70s and 80s and what i mean by that is they yeah, would close yeah there, there there's this idea like that the town is shut down at like two like nothing is open everybody's home and in bed the only people that are out are cops and criminals and delivery men like after a certain point that's montana yeah and that's that's how uh, it, that's how early portland is for a lot of our history there's a huge chunk we'll get into that in the the next section which is going to be about history of portland and history of plaid but the uh the switch uh f- from 7 to 11 is also a change in how we view convenience because it's it's convenient to show up at 7 a.m. for some people uh but it also kind of codifies it's again this thing it it's you're working there based on class so if you're in the supermarket you have a really good job right and you're with a union and you're part of a big company that spreads across the country usually if you're a grocery shop owner you're an independent business person right you're an entrepreneur you're 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 doing it your goal is to compete with the big stores right but you're you've shifted from being kind of the the center of town to a more entrepreneurial middle class maybe you can kind of take over and then these convenience stores are much lower class it's the people who uh can't get hired at jobs that were normal hours nine to five as it were right Mm -hmm. and it also takes a cost on these people because there's public transportation isn't a thing so they are hiring people locally that, that, that's a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, like the, the people that are getting these jobs, they're not going to get to join a union. They're not going to be, they're going to be, uh, what I consider the, the, the distressed. So people who are disenfranchised, people who are disabled, or people who are otherwise just dislocated from the general mainstream. Yeah. Marginalized folks. Yeah. In general. Um, 
And so, and so the switch to 24 hours actually comes in 1963. Uh, and the lore, the thing is, nobody is certain on some of these things. Because what happens a lot of times uh, throughout the history of businesses is they'll find out something makes money and then they'll just keep doing it. Like, like we saw, like they're like, oh, it turns out it makes us money when we sell the milk along with the ice. Let's keep doing that. Turns out, makes let's us- add something else. You know what else we could add? Our newspapers, right? Yeah, exactly. So in uh, 1963 at the University of Texas, there's this huge game and it keeps the store open for 24 hours. Basically, they can't shut down business. Because there's so many people going in to buy things. Yeah, and they just never have a chance to. Oh, is that like the original Black Friday then? Is that? Uh, maybe. Oh, no. It would be football. Yeah, and it's, it's, football. Yeah, it's beer and cigarettes and chips and snacks. And, and I'm sure maybe it was like a Friday night. I don't, I don't know the the like I said. It's lore. Nobody, nobody yeah. was taking notes. Like there's probably a story in some paper wherever the University of Texas is located, where they're like, last night's store did a remarkable sales, right? But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need to go that far into. It. I just knew 24 hours starts in Texas in 1962 or 63, um, probably 63 for sure, and it's because they just can't shut it down, and they're like, well. If we do that, we'll keep making money. And they start, again, adding things. In 1966 is when they add Slurpees uh, because the icy machine has been invented that makes chipped ice and adds the syrup, right? And that's that keeps – they start adding that to the stores, and that makes them stay open even later, right? And over – Plaid starts in 1962, but over this time period, a bunch of other businesses kind of begin to follow this uh, I'm just model. saying you're glossing over the creation of the icy machine – there's a lot of points in this that you're throwing information at me, and I'm like, "What?" Oh, there, there are there 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 are dozens of videos about the history of the Slurpee and the icy. Oh my there God. are there 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 is so much historical research on the history of the icy. Like, if there can be that, why hasn't there been more about this? Uh, because I mean, there has been about this, and we're gonna get to that in the last part. But okay, it's been good. very limited. But and, and part of the problem with anything that comes out about the history of convenience stores is it usually comes out from the industry itself. Yep. And there's even a convenience store lobby, right? So they they're shocked. Yeah. So they're motivated <laughs> to put out videos that are like, "Look at this thing you love. Don't think about the labor theft, yeah. right? Like like that kind of stuff." Um, and, and 7-Eleven isn't alone in this. By the time our story will begin in the next section, right? There are, uh, there's Quick Stop, there's Speedy Mart, there's, uh, Plaid Pantry in the Northwest, there's Dollar General, Dollar Store, and also a bunch of little individual mom and pop shops that figure out this model of, we can sell you things. This, by the 60s, is when our idea of a convenience store, which is... A supermarket is where you go to be seen and where you go to be, where you go uh, as an event. It's a part of your week. You plan it out. Now you go to a grocery store, maybe because you're a little bit poorer, maybe because uh, the the supermarket is too far away and you don't have a car. Uh, And that's another big element to these things. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that. Is where you can go. So growing up in Great Falls, Montana, there aren't really just pure convenience stores they're almost always i mean i can't really remember them not being attached to a gas station so but that's also because montana has extremely not robust uh public transportation and people have to rely on driving so i was just thinking like some of the stuff like 
the concept of a convenience store just being a convenience store wasn't something I really saw until I left yeah. Montana. And uh, and that's where that's actually a, that's a smooth transition because that's kind of what I was going to finish on, which is that as as we're going to fast forward a lot of time from the '60s to <laughs> now uh, and come to now, and what we see now is that we have a lot of big mega stores, right? Uh, like Walmart, like Fred Meyers, like Target, right? That do, they sell you almost anything. Costco, right? That sell yeah. you just everything. Groceries, electronics, uh, medicine. But these places require a car. A lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Even the ones that are public transportation adjacent. Uh, I'm disabled. I'm missing three vertebrae. We mentioned that in the last thing. Uh, and I take he the bus. He just won't stop talking about it, guys. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's my whole backstory. But, I'm <laughs> but uh, it's difficult for me to go grocery shopping without somebody because uh, I have to get on a bus. I have to carry bags that I really can't yeah. carry. I have to take a journey or I have to bring my kid with me. And like, I love my kid, but he's as ADHD as me. So going grocery shopping is an exercise in taking care of two children. One of them is just me. Ugh. Right. So it's and it's no different in the 60s to a certain degree because you need a car to go to the big places like Safeway. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're a little bit poor, you're going to be able to go to the grocery store and I can get a little bit more shopping done, you know, at the Safeway up the corner from me. But it's going to be a little bit more expensive than if I go to the, the big Supra Winco or the big Fred Meyer and get everything all at once. Mm-hmm. Right. And for a lot of the country, because uh, they're they're ubiquitous throughout the nation, uh, a lot of people are stuck in what we have just discovered is the term food apartheid zones. It originally was referred to as food deserts, which has been deemed to be kind of problematic because it implies that there are not is not life in those areas. And we're both white people from Portland, so we have to be at least problematic with our language. We have to be cutting edge. <laughs> but but the the thing is that a lot of the nation is in food deserts in zones of food apartheid. And what that means is that it is very difficult to get quality, nutritious, reliable food at a mm-hmm. reasonable cost. And a ton of the nation, like uh, over... Uh, Depending upon what you read, because again, you can't stu- you can't trust statistics that are from the convenience store lobby. But uh, something like two thirds of the nation will get food from a convenience store over the course of the next year, right? And a lot of the country, the only places that they get food is Seven Eleven or Plaid Pantry or AMPM or the Quickie Mart, or like you said, they live the the gas station that's just up the road that's kind of that combination grocery store Mm -hmm. slash what if it was in a city would be considered a convenience store yep right this so i just googled a statistic but it's saying around 39.5 million people 12.8 percent of the u.s population live in low income and low access areas according to usda's most recent access of the report published in 2017 and this information comes from 2021 and it's from the AECF.org. Okay, that's more reliable than my notes. That yeah, I, the that Annie I, E. Casey Foundation. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to look this up to see if I believe but, it But I would, I would believe. But it affects a large amount of people and is specifically targeted towards the most marginalized people. Because poverty and marginalization go hand in hand. And we'll get into this more later. It also targets them for employment without offering good good jobs yeah and, and and we'll get into this more later but it's important to make a distinction between a job 
and a career. Yes. Uh, and to think about that as we go along over the course of the rest of the story. Because these aren't even good jobs a lot of the time. I, I want to refer to a video, an MSNBC video, called This Billionaire Owns Gas Stations. Uh, and it's, it's about this dude in New York. Uh, and I'm glossing over it. It's like a 7 to 12 minute video. It's very easy to watch. Uh, and it's in the segment of like how people have gotten their just kind of not quite insane but reasonable wealth. Right, like, like unreason that that weird state of like unreasonable reasonability as far as wealth goes, where you're like, oh, you have more money than you need, but but you earned it in kind of a fair way, right? And wait, and there are people like that? There aren't. But oh, okay, MS, okay, okay. MSNBC's thesis on this video is like these these jobs. He's the that, relatable billionaire. Yeah. The whole point of the chain of videos is that they're, they're jobs you wouldn't expect people to be wealthy or, or industries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's billionaire owns gas station, MSNBC. And what it is, is this guy owns a chain of convenience stores and is a billionaire. Uh, and what happened was it starts off as a uh, mechanic shop. Right. And as cars become more serviced by warranties and dealerships, we go to mechanics less and less, especially Mm -hmm. in bigger cities like New York uh, and in New Jersey, where things are more densely uh, uh, populated. Mechanic space is at a premium and it's not as important. So he adds a gas station to it. And then he starts making a little bit more money, but he realizes, like, you know what? People are coming in here for gas, and they're waiting for their car to get fixed. I should have some things to sell, like some some soda and some candy or whatnot, mm-hmm. right? And he ends up making he ends up becoming a billionaire because he just sets up these shops this way. And every time he buys a business and he makes a little bit of money, he gets a loan against the old business to buy the next one, right? And as that gets him profits, then he kind of becomes richer, pays off the own loan. And now he has two properties that he can get a bigger loan against because that's how capitalism works, right? I hate capitalism so much. I concur. Uh, And each of these stores makes, uh, if I'm reading my notes right, uh, about $50,000 a month. Oh my God. Or maybe that's a year, but it's in the, it's, it, it's they, a good amount of money. It's yeah. a good chunk of change. And he owns several of these. And part of the way he makes money is again, that thing we were stressing earlier where he knows the cost of, uh, of goods. Cause it's always going to be a set. I'm just going to order this amount of candy, this amount of soda, this amount of whatever. Right. And he knows the amount of labor because he's hiring his family. So he can, he can pay them as little or as much as he wants. Right. And then um, because people are always going to be there, because some portion of the business is always going to be doing something, he's always making money off of people being in there, whether it's to get the car fixed, whether it's for the gas, whether it's for the convenient items that are there. God damn. And this is just one guy with a handful of stores in New York. Uh, That's a wild. And he's a billionaire. And there's other chains like this all throughout the country. And that's kind of, that's, that's really what I want to focus on. The next portion of this is really going to focus on Portland and Plaid. And I know it's going to sound like, like I'm, I'm trying to beat them up. But the fact of the matter is they're a very unique and specific kind of, uh, cosmos of this thing that goes along all throughout the country. Yeah. There's, there's different, different instances of this. It almost makes me think of like, fiefdoms or like yeah, warlords a little bit, <laughs> the yeah. convenience lords <laughs> a little bit that that's not a bad way to think of it as as not necessarily as as warlords but definitely as a sort of lordship yeah where, and there's definitely a fiefdom and the the thing that 
also lets a lot of 7-Eleven and the bigger places make money is that they franchise. So they don't, you do all of the work, you pay for all the things, and then you send them money for using their resources, right? So they get the money from selling you things and they get the money from you like having their permission to sell it. And we'll get into how this messes with labor rights a little bit later, but it means that you have basically three versions, three kind of tiers of convenience stores. At the very bottom, you have the mom and pop operations that probably are making a decent amount of profit, but it's a decent amount of profit by working their butts off. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you have the higher up operations like 7-Eleven, AMPM and whatnot, where they're making money, but it's for a vast corporate entity that's actually spread all over the world. Right. Like there's AMPMs or there's 7-Elevens in uh, uh, Southeast Asia and they function totally differently than how they do here. I talked to my friend. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I have a friend who lives in Vietnam and they're much more like, you know, the Dotties here in Portland, like the kind of beer lounges where you can go in and gamble. I think so. That's how convenience store functions uh, and convenience stores function in Southeast Asia. Because a lot of those places have vaguely socialized governments. So you get like a delivery of food each month. So you go to the place where the notion of convenience is, is much more like what we had back in the, at the turn of the 1900s, where you're like, oh, it's, it's convenient that it's here and I can get this piece I need. But it's not about, it's not about the over arc because you don't. You have your needs met, so it's convenient yeah. to go to this place. So it ends up becoming more of a social gathering. So they end up functioning as kind of bars. Like, cause the, the cost of booze at the bars is pretty prohibitive, but the cost of like a beer that you pop open and drink in the 7 Eleven is way less. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like this weird cafe thing, right? And then in like Europe, convenience stores function more as a, like a kind of newspaper kiosk kind of thing where mm -hmm. it's like no place really sells the newspaper or the cigarettes or the porno or blunt wraps or whatever. Right. And so it's more about like, oh, it's just this, these things are all conveniently at this location and I don't need to go to the big store to get them. Mm -hmm. Right. And our notion of convenience stores is much more, it's conveniently located to where I am. Yeah. And also the items there are conveniently prepared. It's our, our notion is very specific to America. I uh, was thinking of you talking about like uh, pricing things up because you can price things up in a convenience store. It and made me think about the fact that I had to, I drove to Montana and I didn't bring my allergy meds and then I was driving back to Portland and I got to probably like partway through Eastern Washington and my eyes were leaking so much I couldn't see the road. So I had to pull in a convenience store and get two allergy pills and they were five dollars <laughs> and, and that's and that was that's, without tax and that's how they make a lot of their money is that they know uh we'll get you're gonna be that desperate for yeah. that thing that's why you showed up here yeah and we'll get into that uh more as we get into uh the history of plaid itself because i kind of have that all woven together but that's i wanted to that first section is of course about the history of grocery shopping this section is more about the history of convenience stores specifically so that by 1962 uh, when when our, our next story, or the big part of the next chunk will start. Um, convenience stores are much more about it's got items that are convenient to pick up and take home and they're conveniently located in that like they're not like the supermarket. They're not like the grocery store. They're, there's bound to be one up the corner. Yeah. Uh, and they have they have less the corporate entity and more the kind of like 
mom and pop feel or that weird like you know how there's those chains that aren't chains you know what i mean mm-hmm. like like i'm i'm trying to think of like burgerville here in oregon where it's like kind of local but not exactly local but yeah. they're not there's not hundreds but there might be a hundred yeah right that's 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 what 7-eleven and uh quick stop and speedy mart are at the start of the 60s right and then you have these mom and pop locations Okay. So how do we feel? Do we feel like we've got a good grasp of kind of this, this history as we go on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we just definitely need to stress that it's close by and it has to be something that's open, convenient hours because people are probably, especially towards seventies, eighties and stuff, you have to work more to get the same amount. Inflation Mm -hmm. keeps on going up and wages start to stagnate. So you have, there's folks, the, the closer you are to the bottom, the more you have to rely on a convenience store to meet basic needs because you can't afford to pop by the grocery store because you probably don't even have fucking time to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's by the, by the sixties, we are starting to see much more of jobs being a thing and careers being less of a thing without more barriers to entry. Yeah. So you need, so it's easier to go to college, but you need a better degree to get a better job and you can do there's shift differentials if you're in unionized industries, but there's not always so. So, like if you're if you're in production and you work the graveyard shift, they're going to give you an extra buck fifty because they know it's inconvenient to you. But if you're at a a, a diner that's open twenty four hours, they're not going to do that because they don't care because there is no diner union. You know what I mean? Right. That will become a bigger deal as the sixties come into play for sure. Okay. But right. yeah, I think I think we've covered it pretty well. I'm excited, but we should wrap this up for now. All right. So so join us for part two. Now that we're clarifying these, uh, well, we'll part three. Part three. Part three. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll get into the how history embarrassing. Of <laughs> and we can't, we can't, we can't edit. There's no, there's no audio editing. So no, it's, we don't even have editing uh, tools. That would be illegal. All right. Illegal. Against the rule. <laughs> So Patrick wanted me to let you folks know that uh, I sell artwork, and I do. I predominantly do poor painting, which is the most uh, elegant way of saying I have ruined uh, my chances of getting my deposit back at my apartment. If you folks are interested in looking at the visual art that I have created, um, you can go to at whoreforpoor on Instagram, so W-H-O-R-E. F-O-R-P-O-U-R. Yeah, I spelled that right. Uh, And you can see my artwork. At this time, I'm not really interested in doing commission. But if there's a piece that's listed for sale, just send me a direct message and we'll see what we can do about getting that in your hands. This is the credit portion of the Cost of Convenience podcast. Unless otherwise specified, all information was obtained through the Oregonian's historical archive or by personal experience. We were recorded by Rochelle Cody. We were edited by Patrick Thomas Perkins, who also supervised and researched. Uh, After I edited it, I realized that I had a few thinks that I hadn't given when Rochelle and I recorded, and I wanted to do so now. The first one is to my son. Thank you very much. I love you. I appreciate all the help you've been. I would like to also thank Julia Bemis, May Chomet, Dustin Abels, and Baby James for being amazing co-workers while I was at Plaid Pantry. I would also like to thank Ash Alexander, Crystal Kordowski, and Jaron Wales for their assistance with the research. 
I have a lot of personal friends I should thank, but in particular, I would like to make note of Joe Hieronymus, Tony Burgess, Alison Beckwith, and Chelsea Margaret and Lion Mermaid, who were a great deal of support. Uh, and I'd like to thank the comedy community, because people wouldn't have heard about the boy count if it wasn't for you guys. In particular, I'd like to thank for that Jane Malone, Belinda Carroll, and Coor Coheen. Thank you, Dirty Angel, as well, in particular, Courtney and Tyrone Collins. If you would like to say thank you to me, uh, I am currently disabled, unemployed, and not on disability or unemployment. Uh, and if you'd like to support me financially, you can Venmo at Patrick-Thomas-Perkins, Cash App at PTP Mr. Megalomania, that's P-T-P-M-R-N-E-G-L-O-M-A-N-I-A, or PayPal at Patrick Thomas Perkins, all one word. Once again, thank you, and please don't forget the cost of convenience. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.